Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 19. I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, Motives Revealed. Motives Revealed. Well, if you have spent much time with me at all over the last uh, 17 years that I've been here, you have probably figured out that I'm a fan of a particular TV show, The Andy Griffith Show. The Andy Griffith Show is probably my favorite show, and I watch it uh, quite a bit. In fact, I watch an episode almost daily. Uh, it's a great show. I, of course, I only watch the black and white ones. I think the color ones have lost some of their charm, okay? Well, in episode one of season five, there's an interesting plot line that the creators develop. And the plot line is basically this. Andy's young son, Opie, reveals to his dad that he's got a crush. He's got a crush on a girl at school. And he's talking to his dad over breakfast, and he tells his dad that this girl is a little older than he is. And he asks his dad, Andy, is it okay that I like an older girl? And Andy's kind of barely paying attention as he's eating breakfast and reading the morning newspaper. And he says, yeah, it's, it's really okay. It's no problem if you, has, if you have a crush on a little bit older girl. And so he tells his dad, I want to buy her a gift. And he pursues buying a gift. He's got a whopping 74 cents to spend on a gift for his crush. So he goes to the store and starts looking at a lot of different things. What is revealed is that this girl is significantly older than Opie. Well, Barney Fife, the able deputy to um, Sheriff Taylor, gets involved in the situation and he tells Opie, hey, here's the deal. The way you win a girl's heart is not through gifts, but through words. And so Barney pulls out this well-worn romantic poetry book. And he says, look, this is, a, this is the way to do it. This is the way you get to the girl's heart. And so uh, Opie calls his crush on the phone. And so what happens is, is Barney begins reading a line quietly uh, to Opie, and then Opie will recite each line to his crush on the other end of the phone line. It's then revealed that the crush that Opie has is not on just someone who's a couple grades older than him. It's actually on his teacher, Miss Crump. Now, if you know the Andy Griffith show, you know that Miss Crump happens to be Andy's love interest. Well, Barney is feeling quite satisfied over his opportunity to help young Opie out. He sits back and leans back and just revels in the moment. Well, while Opie is making his way to Miss Crump's house, Miss Crump calls Opie, excuse me, calls Barney back at the jail. And of course, Barney gives his classic response when he learns who's on the other end. He says, you? When I was a kid, we hated our teachers, not loved them, right? And so he's just really forlorn that this is who the crush is, especially since Helen is Andy's girlfriend. So Andy finds out, and he has a sit-down conversation with Opie, and he reveals his relationship to Miss Crump. Miss Crump is actually my girl, Andy says. In fact, you're kind of creeping in on my territory, son. To which Opie responds, well, gee, Paul, I didn't know that. Well, I won't do anything to mess it up. Isn't that nice of Opie? So this really is a sense of, of motives that were not revealed. They were hidden. And there's all kinds of reasons why people hide their true motives in a situation Opie kept his motives hidden for obvious re reasons. His crush was a, uh, his teacher. But if you think about it, his dad kept his motives hidden. We're introduced to Miss Crump, 
at the beginning of season three of The Andy Griffith Show, and he doesn't reveal to his son that his teacher is actually his girlfriend a season and a half later, year and a half later. So somebody's keeping secrets there as well. Why is this the case? Why do people keep secrets? Why do they keep their motives hidden from what's really going on? Well, normally it's because of some kind of self-serving reason. Some self-serving reason, I don't want you to know, I don't want you to understand, I don't want you to apprehend exactly what's going on in my mind or in my heart because that might change the desired outcomes that I have that I want to see happen. As we come to our passage today, there really are some some motives that are revealed. Uh, The Jewish leaders who have handed Jesus over to Pilate, Caiaphas, the high priest with the Sanhedrin, handed Jesus over to Pilate, and in our passage today, they finally reveal the true reason why they've got a problem with Jesus. Their motives are clearly revealed. You see, they had accused Jesus already of multiple trumped-up charges, multiple accusations, of course, none of which were able to stick with Pilate. Interestingly, when you harmonize the four gospel accounts, there are a total of six, six accusations, in addition to the one we're going to study today, six accusations that the Jews brought against Jesus before Pilate. Again, none of them would stick. They couldn't get any of them to hold water. What are those baseless accusations? I have the list on the screen. The first one that we see is in Matthew 26, 61. They claim that Jesus threatened to tear down their temple. But we know Jesus was referring to the temple of his body, not the actual physical temple. We studied last week that they proclaimed he's an evildoer. When the opposite is true, he was completely righteous and holy. There's no evidence of this charge. Thirdly, they claimed he was perverting the nation. No, he wasn't perverting the nation. He was actually, by his ministry, purifying the nation. They also said that Jesus was forbidding people, the Jews particularly, to pay taxes to the Roman Empire, to Caesar. No, just the opposite. What did Jesus say? Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. You should pay your taxes. Fifth, they said he was seeking to make himself king. He wasn't seeking to make himself king. Jesus was king, and he knew he was king. He didn't have to prop himself up when he already had a clear understanding of his position. And finally, they said he was stirring up the people to form some type of a riot. That's not true either. He was actually stirring up the people to pursue righteousness. Again, the Jews weren't able to make any of their charges stick, so much so that as we considered last week, not once, not twice, but three times, Pilate clearly declares his conclusion, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. So finally, since none of their accusations uh, would hold water, exasperated, they finally blurt out what their real issue, what their real problem with Jesus is. And it's in our focal text today. So look with me in your Bible We're in the Bible study outline as I read uh, John chapter 19, beginning in verse 6. This is the inerrant word of God. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Pilate heard this statement. He was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? 
Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone of Payment and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. On verse six, he says, take him out yourselves and crucify him. Is that what he really meant? Well, no, because they didn't have the capacity or the ability or the authority to actually execute the death penalty. We saw that last week. They had their uh, opportunity to execute criminals eviscerated by the Roman Empire. They could not administer a death sentence. Of course, that didn't stop them from trying. Multiple times in Jesus's life, in Jesus's ministry, they did, in fact, attempt to kill him. On one occasion, they attempted to throw him over a cliff Another occasion, they attempted to stone him. In fact, a few months from here, they will actually administer a death sentence on Stephen and take him out and stone him to death. So when Pilate says, take him out yourselves and crucify him, it's, it's not that he's telling them to do the dirty deed. It's more of an exasperated, frustrated response. You guys take him out. I'm not going to have anything to do with him. But again, the Jewish leaders had brought all of these criminal charges against Jesus, all of these accusations And Pilate, looking at the charges, didn't think any of them held water. They could not convince him that he was breaking some type of Roman law. And so the Jews responded to his assertion, well, okay, if he's not broken your law, he has broken our law. This is their hidden motive. He's broken the law of claiming to be God. He's broken the law of blasphemy. And it was clear, blasphemy was a well-established law among the Hebrew people. All the way back to the third book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus, we see this law established. Leviticus 24 says this, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to to death. So this was the law of the land. For over 1,400 years, the law of the land was you commit blasphemy, you are worthy of the death penalty, worthy of death. So by Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, he was worthy of death by blasphemy. Unless, of course, it's true. Is it true that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, it is. So it's not blasphemy if, in fact, it is true. So again, of all the charges they brought against Jesus, whether they were civil charges, Roman charges of sedition, or religious charges, he is the completely and pure, innocent son of God. And just to reiterate something that I've mentioned throughout this study through the Gospel of John, don't ever let anybody tell you Jesus never claimed to be God. 
It's all through the Gospel of John. In fact, this is exactly what the Jewish leaders accuse him of doing, is claiming to be God. He did claim to be God. But as we turn our attention to our focal passage, I want us to consider some motives that are revealed from some of the main characters in this passage, in this text. The motives of Pilate, the motive of Jesus, and even the motive of the jealous Jews. And I want to point out four in particular that emerge from the passage today. The first one is this, and that is fearful superstition. Fearful superstition. When the Jews brought this charge against Jesus of blasphemy, he claims to be the son of God. Notice again how Pilate responded. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. This is a response in Pilate of fearful superstition. You see, the non-Jews, the pagans, who lived in the first century of the Greco-Roman world, they were highly superstitious. They were not just a little stitious, they were superstitious. Some of you all get that later. (laughs) Do you remember in Acts 14, whenever the apostle Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra? They're in Lystra, and God uses Paul to heal, to raise up a crippled man. Notice how they responded to Paul's healing. When the crowds saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. You know what that is? Superstition. You go to Acts chapter 28. You remember the story. The apostle Paul is on a ship. He tells him, you don't want to sail right now. It's bad news. They didn't listen to Paul. They listened to the ship captain. And what happened? There was a shipwreck. They're floating on debris in the sea. They end up landing on the island of Malta. They build a fire to warn themselves. Paul goes and grabs a bundle of sticks to throw on the fire. And what's inside the bundle of sticks? A viper, a poisonous snake. And it attaches itself to Paul. And all of those around said, oh, he must be a, a criminal. He must be a lawbreaker. And they were just waiting on him to keel over, right? They're waiting on his hand to swell up. But nothing happened. How did they respond in Acts 28? But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. (laughs) Superstition. This is the mindset of the Greco-Roman world. They were highly superstition. And even Pilate and others of the, the pagan world of that day, they would have thought it was more likely for one of the gods to come down and take the form of man than the Jews would have thought. So Pilate says, okay, you're saying that he's claiming to be God, God coming in the form of man? Well, let me go back into my barracks. Let me go back in there and talk to him a little further. And what does Pilate do? He says, Jesus, where are you from? Why is he asking this question? Is he asking him because he doesn't know his physical address? Well, he knew he was from Galilee. That's why the other gospels record that he tried to get his case turned over to Herod because Herod had jurisdiction over Galileans. Is he saying, where are you born? Were you born? And not Bethlehem is what he's referring to. Where did you grow up? Nazareth? No, that's not what he's referring to. He's talking about his place of ultimate origin. He's trying to discern, is he really one of the gods who have come down? Where are you from, Jesus? What is the place of your origin? Remember, <laughs> Pilate had just authorized his thugs to beat Jesus, to ridicule Jesus, and to mock Jesus. And now there's this possibility he's one of the gods who's come down in human form. I need to clarify this, otherwise the gods may be mad with me. And much to Pilate's consternation, Jesus 
refused to answer his question. He refused to respond to his uh, questions. Why now was Jesus suddenly silent? I mean, he's been engaging with Pilate all along up to this point. He's been talking with him and sharing things with him. Why at this point did Jesus decide to be silent? Well, I read lots of different opinions about it. Clearly, we can't know why Jesus' motives here, but I think at least in part it may be because he recognized Pilate's intense superstition. So let's suppose Jesus did answer his question and said, oh, well, I'm from heaven. I am the creator of all that exists. I have always existed. There's never been a beginning to me. In Pilate's fearful superstition, what would he have done? Ended the whole thing right there. It's over. But Jesus is resolute. I'm going to the cross. I'm not going to let anything, even Pilate's superstition, impede that purpose for which he came, to die for the sins of the world. Well, it's interesting that all four Gospels record Jesus' silence before Pilate. Why? Because this is a fulfillment of messianic prophecy. This is how Isaiah put it in Isaiah chapter 53. He said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And so we see from Pilate this fearful superstition. But when Jesus does not answer his inquiry, he turns quickly. He turns from superstition, fear, concern, to anger. He's enraged. He's infuriated that Jesus would be silent and would not answer his questions. And that leads to the next motive I want us to see in this passage. It's a motive of Jesus that I'm referring to as humble submission. Humble submission. Let me set this up for you. Pilate, again, is enraged because Jesus is silent. He's not answering the questions. And in a moment of frustration, Pilate says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So it seems Pilate's fear was temporary. He immediately begins exerting his position. He couldn't handle the possibility that this Jewish rabbi, who looked nothing like he would be a god inhabiting a man's body, would not answer him, that he would be refuted by the likes of him. So he begins to do what a lot of self-important people begin to do. He begins recounting his own position. He begins reciting his accomplishments. He begins putting forward his resume. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? This is what people do. They put, put forward evidence of their great worldly success. You won't speak to me. I hold all the cards here, dude. I'm the one that could cause you to live or cause you to die. Well, it seems Pilate's mention of, quote, authority got all over Jesus. He was silent, but he would break his silence. It's almost as, let, as if Jesus is saying, okay, I can't let, let this dumb statement go <laughs> without responding. And so what does Jesus say in verse 11? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. What is Jesus doing here? He's establishing a very clear biblical principle 
There is no human authority except that it has been given by God. All authority, all position, all power, all influence is ultimately because of God. And we've established the fact that that Jesus is not guilty of blasphemy. He is, in fact, the Son of God. But Pilate wants to flex in front of Jesus his position, his authority. And Jesus identifies. Here's where your authority comes from. It comes from heaven. It comes from God. Jesus claimed to be God. So where did Pilate's authority come from? Jesus. The very one that gave Pilate the authority and the position and the power that he has is standing right in front of him. The very one that had the position to end this whole charade is standing right in front of him. Jesus holds all the cards here, not Pilate. And friends, this is what I'm referring to as humble submission. Jesus could have said, Pilate, the jig's up. I'm God. You're gone. But he doesn't. Even though he's the Lord of the universe, he humbly submits to the authority of Pilate. What? He humbly submits to his position, the very authority that came from Jesus himself. Pilate has borrowed authority, but it is legitimate authority. And Christian, listen, this same attitude ought to mark the follower of Christ. We ought to submit to human authority. This is what Jesus did. Is Pilate's authority evil and wicked? Yes. Did Jesus submit to it, even though he's the one that gave it to him? Yes. Paul said something similar in Romans chapter 13. He put it like this. Let every person, every person, is that you? Yes. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Friends, if Jesus could humbly submit to the evil authority of Pilate, there is absolutely no reason why you should not submit to the evil authority that's over your life. And we've got some evil authority in our lives, don't we? We do. It's okay. They're not watching. There are no microphones in here or cameras. Well, there are a few cameras, but they're not watching. There's evil authority over our lives, but not near as evil as Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar was the emperor over Rome at that time. He was a cruel and vicious despot who had put Pilate in authority. And Paul says here in Romans to submit The next Caesar that following Tiberius was Nero. And we know what a cruel, wicked man Nero was. He lit Christians, covered them in oil, and lit them up like torches to light Rome. You may say, but don't you understand? My boss, he's not fair. The government, they're liberals. They're stacked against us. I guarantee you they're not as bad as Nero or Tiberius or Pilate. Now, Just an aside, submission to authority does not mean you do not use whatever legal rights you have in your opportunities. If you remember on one occasion when Paul was being beaten, 
He said, hey, by the way, do you guys know that I'm a Roman citizen? No! They stopped beating him immediately. He appealed to the law. Doesn't mean that we don't appeal to the law and use, especially in this country, we have an opportunity that's different than uh, all of human history. We have something that we are, have been given that we are to steward. What is it? A vote. You have the opportunity to exercise your vote and to be steward of that opportunity and to vote in moral and righteous people. But having said that, listen, Christians should be model citizens. Christians should legally pay all their taxes. Because Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar. But Jesus did also identify that the authority Pilate was exercising, it was established in heaven. It was established by God. And Jesus, even Jesus, humbly submitted to that authority. Well, Jesus concludes his response with an additional note in verse 11. Look at the end of verse 11. Therefore, Jesus says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. What's he saying here? Well, first of all, Pilate's actions are sinful. Pilate, if you crucify me, it's sinful. There's no doubt about it. It's sinful. But he says, there's somebody who has a greater sin than that. The one who delivered me over to you. Who's that? What's well, Caiaphas, the high priest? Some think he's referring to Judas here, the betrayer, but Judas betrayed Jesus over to Caiaphas. Caiaphas handed Jesus over to Pilate. And he says, guess what? He's got the greater sin here. Now, this statement from Jesus actually disproves a common sentiment in our relativistic world today. And you've probably heard something like this. All sin is the same in the eyes of God. Anybody heard something like that before? All sin is equal in the eyes of God. Not according to Jesus. He says clearly Caiaphas' sin is worse. Caiaphas' sin is greater. Yes, Pilate's sin is great, but Caiaphas is more heinous than that. So apparently, there are degrees of sinfulness. There are degrees of wickedness. Now, Every sin, no matter how small, no matter how minuscule, is enough to condemn you to hell forever. So it's equal in that sense. They're all condemning before God. But they're not all equal in the sense of their wickedness or their perversion. I mean, common sense tells us this. Is running a stop sign the same as abusing a child? Is all sin equal? No, of course not. Some sins of thought don't have near the ramifications as sin of action, right? Certainly not all sin is the same as far as its effect on others and far-reaching ramification. And Caiaphas' sin here is particularly evil, especially uh, when compared to Pilate. Why is Caiaphas's sin greater? Because he's sinning from a position of knowledge. He's sinning from a position of scriptural understanding, he has the entire treasure trove of truth from the Old Testament at his disposal. He has much of the Old Testament as high priest completely memorized. He knows the truth. Does pagan Pilate know the truth? No, he does not know the truth. But your Caiaphas, from his jealousy and from his place of privilege with his access to truth, his sin is greater because he's not only turning Jesus over to Pilate, 
but he's leading the entire Sanhedrin. He's leading the entire nation of Israel to have their deliverer killed. His sin is greater. So listen, that's why, friends, a pastor who forsakes his office and prays on poor people, that sin is greater. A pastor who manipulates emotions to have financial gain, friend, that sin is greater. A father or husband who has been given the position of authority in the home, who mistreats his wife and abuses her, who is cruel to his children, that sin is greater because of the position they hold, because of the particular responsibility that comes with that spiritual authority. Well, throughout this account, Pilate is revealed as being weak, pitiful, and a moral coward. But here's another irony. He's the one with the power. (laughs) He's the one with the position to actually stop this whole thing. But he doesn't do it. And that really leads to the third motive that's revealed here. The motive of the Jews, they respond with this coercive suggestion. It's not totally clear why, but for some reason, Pilate just does not want to convict Jesus. Over and over again, we see this. Not guilty. He's not guilty. He's not guilty. He's done nothing deserving death. This is Pilate. And even here in the passage before us, verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. He, that means he kept on seeking to release Jesus. Well, if Pilate is so intent on releasing Jesus, if Pilate is so intent on letting him go free, what did the Jews do or what did they say that prevailed upon Pilate to get him to do what they wanted him to do all along, which is crucify Jesus? Well, here's what they did. Look again at the end of verse 12. If you release this man, You are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. What are they saying? You're not Caesar's friend if you release Jesus. Now, question. Was Pilate buddy-buddy with Tiberius Caesar? Well, there's no historical indication that that was the case. Tiberius may not have even known who Pilate was. But we do know from history that the Jews had already sent complaints to Rome about Pirate's tyrannical rule over them in the region of Judea. You see, there was uh, part of the genius of the Roman Empire that kept what's known as in Latin Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace. Part of the genius of the Roman Empire, and I understand recently from uh, social media, men think about the Roman Empire a lot more than women. I don't know if you've seen that trend lately. I don't know why that is, but we do. We think about the Roman Empire quite a bit. But the Roman Empire had this Pax Romana, this Roman peace. Part of it was because when they would conquer a region, they would leave the local governing authorities and the local customs and traditions in place and let them adjudicate their own decisions and actions. And so that's certainly what happened in Judea. That's why you have the Sanhedrin. That's why you have the high priest and those local rulers Well, the Jewish historian Josephus records an incident where Pilate, under the cover of darkness, brings into the holy city of Jerusalem some effigies, some idols of Tiberius Caesar that proclaim Tiberius as Lord. So the next morning, 
The Jews wake up, they enter Jerusalem, the religious leaders, and they find these effigies of Tiberius, and it is breaking their local customs. It is against the law. It's breaking their traditions. So what do they do? Here's what Josephus says they did. They go to Caesarea, which is where Pilate's headquarters were, and they go to his headquarters, and they're outside for five days in vigil, praying, beseeching Pilate to remove these idolatrous effigies from the city of Jerusalem. So finally, Pilate comes out and he says, okay, okay, let's go to the, to the auditorium and I will sit in judgment in tribunal and I will listen to your complaints. So he summons all of them into the stadium. They all get into the stadium. He sits down and he had already ordered his whole battalion of Roman soldiers to encircle them. And he says, if you do not leave and speak not another word of this, I'm gonna have you cut down immediately. Here's how the Jews responded. They all laid down prostrate on the ground in that stadium, extending their necks and said, cut us, kill us. Well, Pilate understood. I've already got a couple strikes with Rome. If I kill these innocent Jews, it is not going to go well for me. So he relents and he removes the effigies from Jerusalem. And so uh, he relented. They, so they had sent these previous complaints to Rome about Pilate. But in this case, it would be a little bit different complaint. See, it's not that Pilate is breaking their customs and their traditions. It's that Pilate is aiding and abetting a man who claims to be king. So it's not just that they have their little local customs that he's breaking, but this is a rival to Caesar, and you're not doing anything about him? Well, any person who knew he was aiding and abetting a rival to Caesar would not be Caesar's friend, a supporter, a team player. And Pilate knew the stakes were high. It wasn't just that he would lose his position, he would lose his life. And so it's at this point that after all of Pilate's attempts to release Jesus, he kowtows to the pressure. He gives in to the mob mentality. He's motivated by the fear of man. But where is Jesus in all this? Jesus is not motivated by the fear of man. Jesus is not motivated by mob mentality. He's not swayed to the left or to the right from his resolute decision that was confirmed in the garden through, sweats, through sweat of blood that he would drink the cup all the way down to the dregs. See, here's the deal. When we fear man, we become like Pilate. We waffle. But when we follow Christ. You know what that is? That's freedom. When you determine, I will not be fearful of man or what man can do to me, that is true liberty. That's true freedom. I wonder, do you know that kind of freedom? Do you know that kind of freedom from the fear of man and what man can do to us? Do you know that kind of freedom that you've resolutely determined to live for Christ and not for other people's approval? Let me give you a hypothetical situation. Hypothetically, suppose there was a sovereign God ruling over the entire universe. And hypothetically, suppose this God has pledged his never-ending allegiance and love to you. How would that change, 
hypothetically, <laughs> your view of your situation, your response to opposition or struggle, your attitude or outlook about the future. Hypothetically, how would that change? Here's the thing. It's not hypothetical. We do have a God who rules over as sovereign of the universe. We do have a God who has pledged his never-ending love for you, for always and forever, so we can walk in full confidence and assurance. If he's already demonstrated it to us, he will continue to do it. This is exactly the conclusion the Apostle Paul came to at the end of what I would refer to as the Mount Everest chapter of the Bible. Romans chapter 8. Notice what, how Paul concluded all these things in Romans 8, 31. He said, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We do have a sovereign God who has already demonstrated his unending love for us through the death of his son, Jesus. And he has already declared he will give us all things. It's not hypothetical. It's true. So we can walk in that truth. So again, Jesus didn't give in to the peer pressure. Pilate did. He leaves this exchange like a dog between a, a tail between a dog's leg, just going away having been beaten. Well, after giving this coercive suggestion and manipulating Pilate, it really leads to the fourth thing I want us to consider. Number four, a cowardly solution. Notice Pilate's cowardly solution in verse 16. So, therefore, he, Pilate, delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. Rather than following his conscience... Rather than doing what's right, he gave in to the demands. But here's the deal. Pilate's not the only coward here. The Jews are cowardly as well. They are as well. You see, in their attempts to sway and manipulate and coerce Pilate to do what they wanted him to do, they're making all these accusations. Most of them did not stick. But John records one statement they made that is absolutely shocking. It, it reveals they will say anything to get Pilate to do what they want him to do. What, what is the statement? It's in verse 15. Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. That's an unbelievable statement. Because in that statement, they are pledging allegiance to Tiberius. They are pledging their allegiance to Caesar as their king. What? Are you kidding me? You're pledging your allegiance to Caesar? The very Caesar whom Pilate had erected effigies of that you complained about? What this reveals is they have no principles. They have no principles by which they lead their lives, by which they lead the people. Now, I know that's nothing like the politicians and government officials we have today. They're all led by principles, right? They don't stick their finger in the wind and see which way the culture's moving. Oh, that's my new platform. No principles at all. 
But what's of greater significance here is actually they are guilty of what they've accused Jesus of being guilty of. What did they finally accuse Jesus of being guilty of when they finally got down to it? Blasphemy. But by proclaiming Caesar is their only king, you know what that is? Blasphemy. Jewish leaders, you can't think of anybody else you might want to announce your allegiance to. You can't think of anyone else you might want to say, well, this is my king. Notice how Isaiah put it in Isaiah 33. He offers a suggestion to them. He says, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Caiaphas, no king but Caesar? No, no king but the Lord. And who is the Lord that Isaiah is talking about here? Jesus. The very one they should be pledging their allegiance to solely is standing right in front of them. They refuse to yield to his lordship. Here's my question as we move to a conclusion. Will you? Will you? Will you give in to the mob mentality of our culture? Will you? Will you kowtow to the pressure of ungodly authorities in your life? Will you? Or will you trust in the one who is not hypothetically sovereign over all, but who is truly sovereign over all. Will you? Friends, don't give in to the hidden motive of cowardice. Instead, friend, be bold and courageous in your witness. Don't succumb to the hidden motive of coercion by peer pressure. Be resolute in your allegiance to King Jesus. Friends, don't acquiesce to the fear of of man, the fear of the unknown, the fear of, yeah, yeah, but what about if you thought? Instead, be moved like Jesus to humble submission to the purposes of God, to his rule and his reign as the sovereign king. And that leads to my last thought. Because Jesus is Lord over all, and all authority is found in him, we know he can be trusted even when things don't make sense.